This is Thinking About OBGYN with your hosts, Antonia Roberts and Howard Harrell. Antonia. Howard. What are we thinking about on today's episode? Today we're thinking about polycystic ovarian syndrome. Oh, yeah. Stein-Leventhal syndrome. Okay. You're not allowed to do that anymore unless you give me another female eponym because Stein and Leventhal were both men. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I mean, I was just going to do the historical tidbit about them. Okay. Okay. That's fine. But I still am going to need two female eponyms if you're going to talk about these two guys. Two, huh? Okay. (laughs) Two guys, two girls. All right. Well, Irving Stein and Michael Leventhal first published a report in the Gray Journal in 1935 called Amenorrhea Associated with Polycystic Ovaries. So Stein was born in 1887 to an Austrian father who owned a brewery and a tavern, and he graduated from Rush Medical College right as the Flexner Report was being published, which we talked about before on the eponym episode, another eponym for the Flexner Award. Rush, by the way, was one of the first med schools in that area, and Flexner didn't have any specific criticisms of that school, so it continued on. Anyway, Stein then went on to serve as a faculty member in Northwestern University School of Medicine's Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and he ultimately retired in 1953. Now, Michael Leventhal also graduated from Rush a few years later in 1924, and they became colleagues. And Stein, in particular, was interested in how radiography could be used to enhance different diagnostic things in OBGYN. There was a new medium and people were learning about it. So working with a radiology colleague named Dr. Ahrens, he developed what's called pelvic pneumography. So they would insufflate air into the pelvis and then take an x-ray while you did that. And eventually they combined that with what today we call hysterosalpingography or an HSG. So this allowed them to see enlarged ovaries in a non-invasive way. You had to have the air in there really to see the ovaries on a plain film. And over time, he noted that patients who came to him with these menstrual irregularities that we today recognize as often due to PCOS, that this combined with the large ovaries was what what would become this syndrome that they discovered. So they also found over the years in their belief that if they did wedge resections surgically on these ovaries, they thought that that was therapeutic and that it would restore fertility. So importantly, Stein and Leventhal at that time were looking for something to do to restore fertility to these women because most people just advocated for oophorectomy as a treatment or hysterectomy as a treatment for their abnormal periods, which of course took their fertility away. Now, at at the end of his career in 1958, Stein published a paper called The Stein-Leventhal Syndrome in the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'll put a link to these. And the subtitle 30 years later, was a curable form of sterility. So at that time, all the only thing they had was surgical. So that was their wedge resections. Today, of course, we know a lot more. We're going to talk about that, I guess, today. But I will put a picture maybe as the episode title for this episode of one of these. They called them pneumorointograms, where you can actually see these enlarged ovaries that today we would use ultrasound to diagnose. But then that's all they had. All right. Well, that is a nice history. And that's wild to think that ophorectomy or hysterectomy would be a treatment for PCOS. But anyway, in case any of the listeners are not able to see this image, it looks very hazy. Like I can't make any conclusions from looking at this. So that's also fascinating what they did use. I guess they saw a lot of normals versus abnormals. 
And this was one of the pictures that they selected for publication. So this wow. was probably one of the better ones. You can't see any definition or resolution. You can just see these hazy white contours and think like, I guess that's an ovary, but you can't tell that there's cysts in them, just that they're enlarged. So we definitely have come a long way from Stein and Leventhal's time in our understanding of the polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. So we'll talk about that more today. I know we've talked about a few things here and there regarding PCOS in prior episodes. So Stein claimed that 85% of patients that he operated on with a wedge resection had restored ovulation. And that just seems to be a reminder of the need for randomized controlled trials rather than self-selected case series, because that number is incredibly high compared to what we know today. But now you have to pay the price. So what are your two female eponyms? Wow. Okay. Well, so the first is the Potter sequence. Okay, good. Yeah. I think people also know of this as Potter syndrome, but it is described as a sequence of how that syndrome develops. And there's several types. Classically, this is caused by renal agenesis in the baby that then leads to oligohydramnios because they can't pee at all. And then that leads to pulmonary hypoplasia because they need the amniotic fluid to develop their lungs. And then that leads to basically a fatal respiratory insufficiency after birth, because they pretty much have no lungs. And then along the way, they also develop different signs like limb contractures and flattened facial features, because there's no fluid to float around in. So they're all in a contracted position in the uterus. And historically, at least, and I think really even today, this is considered to be incompatible with life due to the pulmonary hypoplasia, let alone the fact that they don't have any kidney function. Now, there are some experimental treatments that include things like early amnio infusions to give them some of that fluid to develop their lungs before birth. And then after birth, basically life support and dialysis since they don't have kidneys and then awaiting organ transplantation. But all of that is really invasive and risky in its own right. And it's not established that it ultimately improves outcomes at all, which I think is a very sad and morbid thought because you can extend a baby's life beyond just those first few hours after birth, which is normally how soon they would pass away with this with this Potter syndrome. But at least in some cases, those treatments might still be futile. You might just end up causing more suffering with these invasive treatments. They have their own serious risks, even fatal risks. And I don't know, it's a tough thing for a parent who wants to do the best for their baby, but they just really have no good option. So, okay, so this is a sad eponym, but it counts as a, as one of your female eponym. I'm halfway there. Yeah. Yeah, so there's one famous case of a congresswoman's child who had these amnio infusions and then subsequently, I think at the age of two or three, received the father's kidney and was doing reasonably well today. But other than that, yes, this is a universally fatal condition. But it was named for Edith Potter, who was really the founder of the field of perinatal pathology. She was maybe more importantly known for her work in establishing RH disease as a significant cause of infant death. But in 1946, she wrote a paper describing renal agenesis and the other syndromic findings in a group of 20 babies who had died shortly after birth and had autopsy. And this was what she discovered. So at the time, she worked at the Chicago Lying-In Hospital, and she worked there for about 30 years. Okay, that's a good one. So now you just owe me one more female eponym. All right, how about Noonan syndrome? Okay, nice. So 
People might sometimes think of this one as like the male version of Turner syndrome. I've seen that a lot on just Googling it online. And that's definitely a misnomer because the genetic origins are completely different. So Noonan syndrome is autosomal and sometimes it's inherited, sometimes it's a spontaneous new mutation, but it's autosomal, whereas Turner is a case of a missing X chromosome. And Noonan can affect females as well as males with it being autosomal, but for some reason, it's usually only the male fetuses that even survive to viability and then to life outside the womb. But then once they're born, they can live full normal adult lifespan. So, so mainly Noonan is seen in males. And on the flip side, only female fetuses can survive with Turner's because you, a fetus with Y0, like a fetus missing, a male fetus missing an X chromosome can't survive. But of course, Turner syndrome is named after a male. So just the opposites there. But anyway, Noonan syndrome patients have characteristic facial features. So usually more widely spaced eyes and low set ears, and they have heart defects, including pulmonary stenosis and septal defects, atrial and ventricular, and short height and often a webbed neck. And so being short and having that webbed neck, I think is what makes them appear similar to Turner syndrome patients. So hopefully that's a nice little review for somebody's medical exams out there. Yeah, well, it was named for Jacqueline Noonan, and who actually just died in 2020. She was a pediatric cardiologist and spent more than 40 years at the University of Kentucky. She was also the first person to describe hypoplastic left heart syndrome. All right. So we got two male eponyms and then two female ones. Were... Well, then you added in Turner. So. Well, yeah. So that one was my fault then. But I won't charge that against you. So I guess let's just this time, let's skip the thing we do for no reason. Because I think we'll find a couple just in our discussion of PCOS today which we generally don't call Stein-Leventhal syndrome anymore. But let's get right into it. Well, like you said, we've touched on this before with some ancillary topics. In our ovulation induction episode, I know we talked a bit about it when we were reviewing the WHO classifications of anovulation. And you can remember then that PCOS falls into this sort of catch-all category class 2. Now, that's not ovarian failure. It's It's also not primarily a deficiency in estrogen or gonadotrophins like we might see in stress-related anovulation, or the rare hypothalamic disorders like Kalman syndrome, which I think is another male eponym, yeah, so I I'm have sure to apologize for that one. But Don't worry about it. So yeah, PCOS kind of is its own thing, and there's a lot of different ways it can manifest. So not all PCOS fits a certain stereotype. And that's the thing to remember about anything that's called a syndrome is it's a syndrome is just a constellation of symptoms by definition. It's not a specific disease. So syndromes often have many different diseases that describe or that can cause that syndrome. And that's weird to people sometimes think even like Down syndrome. Well, there are actually different diseases, if you will, because it's not just trisomy 21. There's also different mosaics and different subtypes of chromosomal abnormalities that still have the same syndrome involving chromosome 21. So it is a syndrome in the sense that it's a constellation of symptoms. And here, unfortunately, that constellation of symptoms, there's a lot of overlap and variation. And unfortunately, the common and I think offensive stereotype that people have in their head of the typical med student stereotype, I think of PCOS is often very wrong, but it's something like hirsute, overweight woman with irregular menses. And, you know, that 
stereotype is harmful because then it sometimes carries with it the idea that if she would just lose weight, her periods and fertility would normalize. And that's certainly not the case. And that certainly doesn't describe a significant portion of women with PCOS, even phenotypically. Yeah. I mean, I remember trying to understand it as a med student as well. I think it's even presented as such a mysterious and multifactorial thing in medical education that, you know, then when we get to the point that we're taught that clinically, if patients even lose 5% of their body weight, they can start to see improvements in their symptoms, then I think it's easy for the med student maybe to fall into the view that, okay, well, if she can improve by just losing a little weight, then that must mean that she caused this on herself by gaining that weight. And that almost like victim blaming as if the root cause of their PCOS is just laziness and just can't control their diet. Now, there are plenty of medical problems that can be traced to bad habits like smoking or even poor diet, but PCOS actually is not one of those things. Even though they can improve by losing weight, it doesn't that doesn't mean that they caused it by by gaining weight. And hopefully we can explain that a little bit better in this episode. But I wanted to talk about this topic because we see PCOS a lot. It's got a pretty high prevalence, but oftentimes we might tend to minimize it because it's not an acutely life-threatening risk to the patient and there's not like a straightforward, easy treatment for it. So it's not satisfying to treat. There's no immediate gratification. Like I'll just do this one quick medicine or procedure and then you'll be cured. It's more of like a chronic management kind of thing. But there was a very in-depth and I think really good review article on PCOS from 2018, which I hadn't read until recently, but really it it really opened my eyes a lot more to this. But I had already known about PCOS and the basics of it, but I think I got a lot better understanding after reading this clinical expert series. So firstly, it made the strong point that PCOS is not associated with obesity or inactivity. So I was hoping to bring up some of the highlights from that article, and hopefully that'll benefit some of our listeners, especially if they haven't happened to read this article recently. Yeah, the Clinical Expert Series articles in the Green Journal are all excellent. Now, some of them are dated. These go back nearly 20 years now. But when you see them, they're definitely something that you should read, and they're on a variety of obstetric and gynecologic topics. This one was by Dr. Ricardo Aziz, and he discusses, as you said, that obesity bias. He talks about some studies showing that patients who are referred for evaluation of PCOS are more likely to be obese. In other words, the thin woman with and ovulation or irregular menses might not get the same referral. But if you screen and work up women who are not seeking care for these symptoms, for example, if you do like a mandatory pre-employment physical exam, you find a similar prevalence of PCOS across all weight distributions, which is up to 20% of reproductive age women. And it's not any more frequent in places with high obesity rates than low obesity rates. And it's not really increased over time, even though obesity rates certainly have gone up. So all that goes to show that obesity is not, as you said, a primary cause of it, but there is definitely factors in PCOS that exacerbate obesity. We just tend to probably underdiagnose it in thinner patients. Yeah, I think it's worth pondering what is the source of this obesity bias? Like why why do we associate PCOS and obesity so closely when they really are not associated? So It could be that doctors are more likely to suspect and diagnose PCOS in obese patients. Like you said, maybe they assume their skinnier patients and ovulation is caused by something else, and so they won't even 
diagnose it. Or maybe it could be that patients are more likely to seek care for PCOS if they're obese, because maybe they're more likely to think that there's a problem. So, so either way, that is a little bit worrisome about some of our attitudes towards obesity, both within the medical profession and just as a society. And we know that obesity is a risk factor for a lot of different health complications, but we also know how difficult it is to lose weight. So I think to approach any obese patient's health issues with kind of this attitude, like you did this to yourself, why can't you just eat less with that kind of a tone just is not helpful. So even if, again, even if PCOS was caused by obesity, but it is not. So I think we really need to be more supportive. And then in the case of PCOS, just remember that the patients did not do this to themselves. They were born I definitely with it. Get, yeah, I definitely get the idea that medical students and residents think of the prototypical case of PCOS as an obese patient. And we have a bias towards thinking of the prototypical presentations of any disease process. And oftentimes this comes at the expense, though, and harm towards patients who don't have that sort of prototypical presentation. But as you said, even in large literature series, at least a third of women who have PCOS are not obese. And that's before we get into the fact that underweight women may be undiagnosed. And so we don't even know the true prevalence. Yeah. So, okay. So I go to an infertility clinic for treatments and on their website, it says that 80% of patients with PCOS are obese. And I'm not criticizing my clinic. I'm thankful for the care I've gotten there. And I think I've gotten really good results and everything. It's, but it sounds like they offer assistance with weight loss in addition to other treatments for PCOS that we're going to talk about. It's what their website says. But I'm wondering if perhaps it may be more appropriate for them to say something like 80% of patients who come to our clinic with PCOS are obese, or maybe even just omit that whole sentence completely. It's definitely true what sort of doctor you are. So I read a paper once that says if you're a reproductive endocrinologist, obviously women with PCOS make up an incredibly large portion of your population. If you're a diabetologist, women with PCOS make up a very large percentage. But even among general gynecologists, when you think about women who have irregular menses or things like that, it's if PCOS is 13 to 20% of the population, in many cases, they make up 40 to 60% of the patients that you see. Yeah. Yeah. So that could definitely contribute to our some of our biases. So the author of this clinical expert series article, he starts with just a brief nod to Stein and Leventhal, not to the level that you just reviewed, but you know, they're the first ones who linked these, I guess I'd say three main symptoms together that people used to think were unrelated. So that's the hirsutism, the oligomenorrhea or irregular periods, and then the polycystic ovaries. And then he quickly reviews the diagnostic criteria, which kind of stems from those symptoms. And that's really at this today, we'd say two out of any two out of three symptoms with some caveats. Yeah. And the NIH consensus diagnosis doesn't specify just hirsutism, but any clinical or laboratory biochemical evidence of hyperandrogenism. So those diagnostic caveats get into, of course, excluding other reasons why you might have those symptoms. And ovulation can be caused by lots of different things. And obviously, so can hyperandrogenism or hirsutism. And in fact, polycystic appearing ovaries can be normal in adolescence. The rate of polycystic appearing ovaries on ultrasounds of women not on birth control is as high as like 25%. And clearly not all those women have polycystic ovary syndrome. So it's actually recommended not to use the ovarian morphology in adolescence because it's so common to find them in that age group as part of the diagnostic criteria. 
And the other thing that's debated in terms of what's called the Rotterdam criteria is whether or not you have to have menstrual irregularity to define the syndrome. I'm of the belief that you really do. If you have, if you ovulate 13 times a year, but you also happen to have polycystic ovarian morphology, well, that would give you two of the criteria if you also have acne or excess hair or something, depending on how liberal you are with that diagnosis. So most I think experts believe that you should have menstrual irregularity if we're talking about this, but there's others who disagree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably a more nuanced point, but it is nice to, if you're not bound to looking for polycystic ovaries in teenagers, that means you don't have to do an ultrasound. And that really is nice to spare doing a pelvic ultrasound on, on a teenager. But I guess the implication then is that for adults to have polycystic appearing ovaries, that's not really a normal variant. Like that can't be caused by anything else, right? Like if they have that morphology, that that is one of the three features of PCOS, right? Yeah, but it doesn't mean that you have the whole syndrome. So there's probably a pathway of ovarian dysfunction that might lead to the syndrome. So again, we don't think that one in four women have PCOS, but one in four women do have polycystic appearing ovaries. But you might think that those women with polycystic appearing ovaries have some risk. Yeah, that makes sense. And just because they're having regular periods, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're ovulating. Like you said, if they're ovulating 13 times a year, then that would be really hard to say that they could possibly have PCOS, but they might be bleeding. You don't know if they're ovulating. Right. That's right. Even among women who have like 28 day perfect cycles, 3% of them don't ovulate consistently. So you can't just take the menstrual sort of calendar as proof of that. And a lot of women are not even that precise. They just know I go once a month and they may only be ovulating a handful of times a year. Yeah. Well, I wanted to get into the evolution and the pathophysiology that this article talks about because I just think that's fascinating. Because of course, if these hormonal derangements are not caused by obesity, then the next question is what does cause it? So the author outlines how there's like several different seemingly independent things that are all happening at once with PCOS. And essentially all of these are heritable. They've been linked to either specific genes or specific areas on chromosomes, and there can be variants within that. But, you know, it's not, I don't think one of those things where you can just go ask for a genetic test for PCOS. It's a little bit too complex right now. Right. And there's probably a lot of epigenetic factors that we're just learning about. We know that there's linkages for in utero factors and things like that. So you may need the gene and you need an epigenetic or some environmental trigger. Even in identical twins, if one sibling has PCOS, there's still only a 70% chance that the other one has it, not 100% as you might think if there weren't other factors in play. So yeah, it's not just the genes. And so this is still poorly understood and not just for PCOS, but for many complex genetic conditions that have some environmental and polygenetic triggers. Technically, of course, even men can and do carry some of these genes and manifest them in different ways. Obviously, they don't, that won't be <laughs> polycystic appearing ovaries or irregular menses, but they may have the same metabolic issues. Male pattern baldness is probably related to this in some way. So this certainly isn't an X-linked disease. But if you're curious about the genes, there are 
commercial DNA test kits out there that can run your whole genome from a saliva sample. And there's probably a lot of companies that are looking for that, but I'm not sure that's ready for prime time. Yeah, I think at this point, they're still just direct to consumer, which I'd say consumer beware that that whole genome test, I looked at it, thought about getting it for myself, but it's not, it's like a thousand dollars. And I'm not sure what is it able to actually tell people about the results because we don't know everything about the genes yet. So maybe one of our listeners has tried it and they can let us know. And I ended up trying one of the cheaper tests. So it was like a hundred dollars instead, because I wanted to know if I'm going to get Alzheimer's and that test didn't tell me anything about Alzheimer's. It, all it told me was that I am predisposed to obesity. That's That's it. funny. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know, maybe I am, but it said I had to subscribe to know anything else. So, and it didn't say anything about PCOS either. So I think it was just a ripoff. Yeah. A lot of the genetic stuff that's out there for a lot of things, again, are just not there yet. There's actually a fairly high false publication, false discovery rate among genes. And so a lot of companies are ahead of their skis a little bit on some of these genetic tests. So don't read too much into some of them. And again, you may have a gene, but not the environmental trigger or something like that. So for now, we need to rely on the clinical signs and symptoms for diagnosis. Yeah. So again, that's hyperandrogenism, ovulatory dysfunction, and polycystic ovaries, or at least two out of the three and having excluded all other causes. So going back to that pathophysiology, in this article, the first thing the author talks about is the pituitary LH secretion is more frequent and it's in higher amounts in PCOS than in the general population. And it's also more resistant to being suppressed by progesterone. And since the pituitary does what the hypothalamus tells it to do, and there's never been an association with PCOS and pituitary tumors, this probably starts at the level of the hypothalamus and abnormal GnRH pulsate. So there's this higher LH going around and that stimulates the ovaries to make more follicles and secrete more anti-malarian hormone and secrete more androgen. And all of that is going to ultimately lead to those signs like hirsutism and acne, as well as the polycystic ovaries. So because of what these ovaries are doing in response to that LH, the follicles become more resistant to FSH that's also coming from the pituitary, probably from all the androgens. And so then they're less likely to mature and ovulate each month, which is why we see the infertility and the irregular menses. Yeah. And the ovaries also affected by other aspects of PCOS, specifically the insulin levels. So the insulin also stimulates the ovaries to make more androgen. And that suggests how you might see some of the same symptoms as PCOS from totally different causes of high insulin states, including diabetes or insulin resistance due to obesity or Cushing syndrome. They're not the same thing, but they can look the same. And there's a relationship between insulin levels and sex hormone binding globulin as well, an inverse relationship. So it also could be that we overdiagnose PCOS in obese patients who really just have insulin resistance. And that's when you see that improvement with weight loss. Yeah. yeah another thing to think about, it, it. it's crazy just how many things affect the ovary. Like We just don't typically think about insulin and ovarian function. But I thought the insulin discussion in this article was also really interesting because basically in PCOS, that insulin dysfunction also has its own genetic basis that has nothing to do with that abnormal GnRH and 
LH pulsation. So it's, there is insulin resistance in PCOS, but it's not by the same mechanism as like the normal insulin resistance we learn about with adult onset type two diabetes. So in that case, the, there's a chronically high energy load, sugar, fats, protein, all of that. And they initially will have a, an appropriately high insulin level to match that energy load. And then their body will respond normally to that high insulin to store all of that energy. And then eventually over years, they'll develop excessive fat deposits throughout their body, including muscles and liver. And those fat deposits will make those tissues unable to respond to insulin as well. So the fat will, it'll harm the tissues insulin response. So that's why type two diabetes is almost completely tied to adiposity in the body. So then these patients' pancreases have to crank out more insulin to get the same effect. And then at some late stage, it's feasible that even the pancreas gets enough fat deposits or other damage that it also becomes dysfunctional and ultimately it can't keep up with the insulin demand. But again, with type 2 diabetes, that's more of a late stage development. It's along with the generalized end organ damage that goes along with the vasculopathy, neuropathy, retinopathy, kidney dysfunction, and all of that other stuff. Whereas early or even isolated pancreatic dysfunction is more what we think of with type 1, where it's maybe being destroyed by autoimmune cells or something like that. Yeah, so that's all with diabetes, but then how does it work with PCOS? Okay, so yeah, with PCOS, there's both a primary insulin resistance that didn't start because of fatty deposits. It was already there. And there's also a primary pancreatic insufficiency that's not due to autoimmune causes or due to end organ damage from advanced diabetes. So both of these are genetic. So it's almost like a PCOS patient has a touch of type 2 diabetes with that insulin resistance and also a touch of type 1 diabetes that both of these are they're mild and maybe even subclinical at first. So they're not going to just go into DKA because they have PCOS. But, you know, the inadequate insulin that they secrete is what leads to them having chronically higher glucose and lipids and all of that despite them eating a normal diet. And eventually they will be they will because of their insulin resistance, they will release more insulin, but it'll be at a delay because of their pancreatic dysfunction. And so if you do a glucose tolerance test on them, their glucose will be high for much longer than it would in a normal person. And if you check their insulin levels too, that'll actually be higher than in a normal person at certain times, even though really they're not releasing enough insulin. It's still an undershoot. But the end result is still that they're hyperglycemic, or at least they have they have a poor response to a glucose load, and they're hyperinsulinemic. And so eventually, over the years, they'll have a chronic energy overload that will also give them fatty deposits, just like with type two diabetes. And eventually, they that could just turn straight into type two diabetes. I think one thing that's fascinating about this and many other diseases think autism, for example, is that over time we learn more and more that there are just genetic bases to a lot of diseases that we never thought of necessarily as genetic before. 
And that's very true in things like being overweight and being thin. You see patients who are thin and they brag about their diet, but the truth is they are lucky with some genes. And you see patients who are obese and people blame their diet or shame them. And the truth is they got unlucky with a, a few set of genes, but it, it takes a long time for us to really see that with such complex pictures. But we don't have as much control over a lot of medical things as we think we do. And eventually we learn that there are these polygenetic and things behind the scenes that we didn't know about. So yeah, so so as you said, these PCOS patients truly are then at a significant risk of developing diabetes because eventually they're going to develop something that acts and looks exactly like type 2 diabetes, only maybe worse in a way, or what we call the metabolic syndrome. So clearly a lot of overlap between PCOS and diabetes and the complications of both. And then don't forget that that extra insulin is not only telling the ovaries to make more androgens, but it's suppressing the sex hormone binding globulin production in the liver, which normally would bind up that androgen. So the net effect is a lot more free circulating androgens, which also are converted by peripheral body fat through aromatization into estrones, but along the way cause lots of damage, including cardiovascular risk and hirsutism and the other things that people are symptomatic with. All right. So so just to recap with the insulin abnormalities and the LH abnormalities, we have someone who's making a lot of follicles, but they can't ovulate. They can't have periods regularly. Eventually they'll get irregular breakthrough bleeding and probably endometrial hyperplasia or cancer, which they are at increased risk for with PCOS. And this patient is also chronically hyperglycemic, hyperlipidemic, hyperinsulinemic, which will lead to a huge range of systemic illnesses down the road, and chronically hyperandrogenemic, which is just, I think, (laughs) unpleasant with the acne and the hirsutism. And so this is, we think, about 20% of females. So... My question is, does it surprise you that the author in this article says there's no good evolutionary reason for this and this is all just a maladaptive genetic accident? Well, I think, yeah, that is surprising. I wonder if we know the true incidence of PCOS in the generations before, say, the 1960s and 70s, when a lot of women were able to get pregnant and pass these genes on. So there is this sort of, I call it the English bulldog phenomenon, where People are reproducing today who might not have been able to reproduce in the past. So we're seeing more and more of the genes become commonplace. Even type 1 diabetes, most children died before the age of reproduction with type 1 diabetes before insulin was discovered. And now we see people like me has two kids with type 1 diabetes because I'm passing those genes on. So not everything has to have an evolutionary advantage, particularly when we are intervening and allowing people like me to have kids at a time 100 years ago I could not have. So most things seem to have an evolutionary advantage maybe in the right circumstance. Maybe we just don't know it. You think about sickle cell anemia. It's not immediately obvious why that has an evolutionary advantage, but it does for some people at the right time in the right place. So thinking about it, if you're living in a state of war or famine, but what little foods you have and what little little foods you can eat leads you to have a higher sugar than it should, you'll probably have more energy to keep fighting another day. And in that case, even having elevated androgen levels is probably not a bad thing. It might enhance your strength or stamina. And you probably don't need to be super fertile during such wars and famines and things like that, too. You need to not bring young ones into an unstable society when you're fleeing. I don't know. You can play around with where this might be advantageous. And I think you can also probably see that there's a higher distribution of the genes. Or maybe 
the environmental triggers that make the genes phenotypically expressed, there's some evidence that women who have PCOS are more likely to have children with PCOS. And there's also some evidence that children born preterm are more likely to have high insulin levels to stimulate ketchup growth that leads to a PCOS. So it could be that a higher ratio of children surviving prematurity and a lot of women getting pregnant who in the past couldn't get pregnant and we see more expression of at least severe cases of the syndrome. But PCOS patients still do ovulate. They just may not ovulate 13 times a year. It doesn't cause sterilization and in any sense for most women, which is always funny when patients come in and say, my doctor told me I couldn't get pregnant. She's there pregnant. So that too would explain why these genes have been able to be passed down through the centuries because it's not a complete inhibition of reproduction. And unfortunately, even today, war and famine is still the reality in a lot of parts of the world. And I don't think that's ever going to change. So while it's not helpful for someone living in peaceful times to have these traits and have to worry about irregular menses and reproductive capacity. You can imagine where these things were shaped and selected for by people going through dire times in the past. And then women have been able to reproduce despite it in most cases. So I don't know, a lot of factors into there. I don't think we, just because we don't know what an evolutionary advantage might be for it, doesn't mean that there isn't one. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting theory. And I think it can be nice to at least have an idea of why things happen sometimes. But apparently this same author... Dr. Aziz, several years earlier, co-authored another paper, and it was about why PCOS has persisted for so many thousands of years. And in that article, he endorsed a lot of those same points. And he even talked about how just the fact of having fewer children. So, you know, instead of getting pregnant at every possible opportunity and having 15 plus kids in a lifetime, if they only had two or three, that that itself was a survival advantage. All of that Kind of like birth control. They had birth control when other women didn't. Yeah, Natural birth control with a small failure rate, I guess. So all of that, it it makes a lot of sense. And they made it make sense in their article. So I think it's interesting that now in this article, he says there's there's no survival benefit. It was all a mistake. So it seems like maybe he lost faith in that theory for some reason. Well, there's no way to test it. And I would say that in the expert review articles, if you don't have good scientific evidence to support the statement, it doesn't make the cut editorially. So one thing, speculation, one thing, science, and most evolutionary biological stuff is just speculation. It's natural and fun to want to know why things might have happened and speculate. Actually, these are some of my favorite topics. We should do an episode sometimes about why humans have menopause, why humans have different characteristics compared to other mammals. But nevertheless, we know that up to 20% of women, if you use a liberal definition of the diagnosis, have this disorder. And we know, as I said, that things that are otherwise deleterious, like sickle cell, still exist in large percentage of populations, despite it seeming like it doesn't have an advantage until you really understand it. So we don't have to explain everything. Things like cystic fibrosis or spinal muscular atrophy traits, they exist and are passed on despite having no apparent survival advantage or my own type 1 diabetes. So... Who's to say? I do think it makes sense that PCO traits could be a survival advantage in certain circumstances, and the built-in birth control theory hmm. is not crazy, but maybe only to a certain extent and in certain circumstances, just like sickle cell. So I bet nobody ever came to the doctor with PCOS comp- complaints, find those complaints to be useful from a from an evolutionary biological perspective. Yeah, well, fair point. Well, whether there was a good historical anthropological reason for PCOS or not, We do also get lots of good insights from this article about how to assess for it and manage it. So I guess let's just move on with that. 
Yeah, and I bet most clinicians don't go nearly into the depth that the article does with their patient's evaluation and treatment options with PCOS, starting with things like the in-office exam. He talks about using Fairman-Galway scoring system for hirsutism, and to do this properly, you essentially have to inspect the entire skin surface area of the patient and grade how thick the terminal hair growth is and what its growth distribution is. I think he spent so much time discussing that because terminal hair growth is really much more reliable for indicating underlying hyperandrogenism than other signs like acne or alopecia might be for indicating excess androgens. Fairman Galway, huh? Yeah. Okay. Well, a couple of more dudes, English dudes, in fact. But also that's important because one of the failures, I think, of Fairman-Galloway for applying it to PCOS is that their research focused basically exclusively on Northern European women. And there's certainly ethnic variation in how much hair is considered normal and what its association might be with underlying fertility problems. So I think you may be harming patients to apply Fairman-Galloway to Asian Indian women or Hispanic women or things like that. The system was just not made for them. Yeah, you would almost have to normalize it against, I I guess, ethnicity or background, which I don't think has been validated. But the idea is looking for excessive terminal hair growth that seems like it's more than what it should be. And he went on to say that if a woman has a really high score on this scale, so she has like significant body hair you almost don't even need to check any blood levels to confirm that the androgens are high because they most certainly will be high. The question is not if, but why are they high? So the inter- the more interesting thing is even with really low scores on that scale, which might be equivalent to having like a few stray whiskers on the chin or upper lip, which you might not even notice if they pluck or tweeze or something, or even if they don't, you might not notice it over half of those patients will still have hyperandrogenism in their blood test that'll be elevated. So it makes a lot of sense to check the blood levels for those patients who really barely have any excessive hair growth. And of course, you're much more likely to encounter patients on that end of the spectrum rather than the ones with really obviously excessive full adult male pattern hair growth. And so for the labs specifically, What you're checking is total and free testosterone at the very least, but ideally also adding on the DHEAS, that's that's dehydroepiandrosterone sulfate, if you're curious, because that increases the detection rate of hyperandrogenism. Yeah, it's important to distinguish between the level of hirsutism and things like that that you would see with a slightly elevated testosterone and then just frank virilization or the kinds of things you might see with hyperandrogenism that has a adrenal gland source. So as you said, DHEAS is elevated for other reasons like congenital adrenal hyperplasia, and that can be helpful for excluding those other causes of excess androgens. But I think he's not wrong about if you have mild, just mild evidence of elevated testosterone, there's no clitoromegaly, there's no excessive symptoms, and you don't really have to think about those things that much. But for the women on the other end of that spectrum, you do really need to start thinking about For example, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. So what else would be looking for that would cause excess body hair? Yeah. So they are promoting this full body assessment, not just for the terminal hair growth, but also looking for other signs like acanthosis nigricans, which is the darkening of the skin in specific places like the skin folds in the armpits and the neck and the groin. And we are looking for acne and alopecia as well and for clitoromegaly 
which as you said, if you're seeing frank virilization, clitoromegaly and all that, it's less likely to be PCOS and more likely to be something like a, maybe like a tumor or maybe exogenous testosterone use because it, you rarely see severe hyperandrogenism with PCOS. You can, but that's more rare. We're also looking for thyroid enlargement, which would p- potentially be an alternative cause for menstrual ir- irregularities. And then we're looking for signs of Cushing syndrome. So that would cause a different distribution of body fat. So maybe someone with thin arms and legs, but then an obese midsection and a fat on their upper neck and back would... I might have that. <laughs> I don't... Well, I doubt it. Silence. Well, <laughs> anyway, d- depending on the presentation and the complaints and other risk factors, then you may also consider doing an endometrial biopsy. That's not part of a basic physical exam per se, but for some patients, it is part of a thorough evaluation. And a lot of these patients are presenting with abnormal uterine bleeding. And then of course, you would recognize that this is a risk factor for endometrial hyperplasia and biopsy may be more than appropriate. He also recommends a pelvic ultrasound in, in adults, not, remember not adolescents, to assess their ovaries, which you could order as a formal ultrasound or do hopefully at the same visit if you can. And then a minimal lab evaluation besides the androgens you mentioned would include maybe a TSH prolactin and checking a 17 hydroxyprogesterone level to assess for congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which he reminds us is the single most common autosomal recessive disease that exists. It's way more common than people realize, I think. That was definitely a surprising fact for me. He said up to 10% of women with hirsutism have congenital adrenal hyperplasia. So I think we don't detect it nearly in everyone that actually does have it. Yeah, it's way more common. It's another medical student bias where people think that this is an exotic disease, but in some series, four or 5% of women have it. And I know you were taught that in medical school by somebody, so don't act too surprised. (laughs) But he does get more into the confirmatory diagnostic testing for congenital adrenal hyperplasia if the 17-OHP is elevated. And we don't need to go into all that here, but this article is a great reference for that. And something that most generalists probably are just going to refer out to an endocrinologist once they find that they need this evaluation. You can still do the test if you want, but if you know what the next step is and maybe they have to wait a while to get in with the endocrinologist, then go ahead and order your ACTH stimulation test. But I think most of us at that point are sending off to an endocrinologist. Yeah, I've never had the pleasure of ordering that test on somebody, but who knows, maybe someday I'll do it since... I, know I have exactly done it. How to do it. Yeah, yeah, I have done it. It's not the craziest thing in the world. Just know what you're checking and send them and get it to the hospital and get it done. But definitely after that point, I would want endocrinology to take over. So, stepping back a little bit, one more basic test he talked about was just confirming ovulation with a midluteal progesterone. And he said instead of the regular cycle day 21 level that, that we normally would check, he recommends just delaying it a little bit to cycle day. 22 or even to 24. Right. And the truth is when you're testing for ovulation, a single day 21, if it's negative, really is supposed to be followed up a day or two later with another test. It's really like a running three day. And so I think that's where he feels like a 22 might make more sense. And another interesting thing is 
that he points out is that 40% of women with hirsutism who think they have regular periods are actually not ovulating. Now, I said 3% earlier, but that's inpatient without other issues. And so a lot of women do come in and say, I have a period once a month. And then if they're not using an app or tracking them or whatever, if you really nail down on it, you'll find that some of these are 24 days, some are 29 days, some are 31. They're not consistent. And So these may just be random breakthrough cycles. They may be post-ovulation bleeds because they probably do ovulate a few times a year. But that's a lot higher than, as I said, than the general population of women who report regular cyclic bleeding. So the later cycle day for testing, too, may just give them a little bit more time because their cycle, obviously, they may have a late ovulation when you're testing them. And so that that seems to be more important in these women than it does in women with normal menstrual cycles. Yeah, and it's really impractical to do it on two or three subsequent days for most patients. Yeah. yeah, I was just thinking that. So, okay, so we've gotten a good history and physical exam. We've done some initial labs. And let's say we have a patient that we're pretty confident we're dealing with PCOS. So then this author gets into assessing and managing the comorbidities that go with PCOS because you can't just make it go away. It, they're going to pretty much have it for life. And as we talked about with insulin, the biggest thing is going to be to check them for diabetes. And with these patients specifically, you want to do a glucose tolerance test and not an A1C and not even a fasting glucose because in PCOS, those are going to be less sensitive for diabetes. Then he recommends at least considering a lipid panel, which would be abnormal with metabolic syndrome and also liver enzymes. But beyond that, we're really mainly managing the symptoms that they have, whether that's hyperandrogenism or the menstrual irregularities, the metabolic issues, or the infertility. And he does go into good detail about the treatment of hyperandrogenism, especially, which is another great thing to reference, and we don't need to harp on it here. But he talks about systemic drugs like spironolactone, which work slowly to prevent new hair growth, meaning it takes sometimes six months to see an impact. In addition to various topical cosmetic treatments to remove or lighten hair that's already there. And perhaps surprisingly, he explains that shaving is better than waxing. I think that's one of those old wives tales that people hear or plucking in terms of removing the unwanted hair while preventing additional hair growth or ingrown hairs or skin damage. So that might be a relief to patients since shaving is also typically less painful and easier and more convenient, although you have to do it every day. So I guess that that convenience goes away if you're comparing it to waxing. Yeah, I think whenever we see patients like with ingrown hairs that turn into almost abscesses, we'll say you shouldn't shave. We think shaving caused this micro trauma and we say they should wax instead, but maybe that's wrong. I don't know. I don't know what the dermatologists say to that. It's probably different if it's in your bikini line. True, true. Than on your face. (laughs) True. But you know, the old wives tell is that if you shave, it'll come back thicker and darker. Yeah, definitely. And that's simply not true. Yeah, people do think that pretty commonly. Well, and he also says that really laser hair removal is almost like the gold standard. It's the most effective, but it's probably not accessible to most people. It's expensive and you need multiple sessions. And then even then it's not always permanent. Yeah, that's keeping up with the Kardashians right there. (laughs) So, well, the next therapeutic topic he talks about, of course, is weight loss. This is never fun or comfortable to talk to patients about. And as we've already mentioned, we have to be very careful not to imply that their excess weight is what caused the PCOS to begin with. But the idea is that insulin resistance does get more common at higher BMIs. That's certainly true. And although we said that PCOS and the insulin resistance associated with it has a genetic cause, and well, the genes don't care if you're obese or thin, 
But it's also true that eventually PCOS patients will develop the same sort of insulin resistance as any other obese patient might when they develop type 2 diabetes or the pathway along there. So that is, again, the fatty deposits in the muscles and liver that hinder the normal response to insulin. So although losing weight won't fix the underlying genetic cause, it can reduce the regular insulin resistance mechanism that may be developing over time, just as it would for a type 2 diabetic. And in those patients, it might be just enough of a change to reduce the insulin effect on their ovaries that allows them to ovulate. So even if a thin PCOS patient didn't have terrible muscular and hepatic fatty deposits causing insulin resistance, which we know from epidemiologic studies that they just don't, we also know that making someone underweight is going to cause more harm than good and will probably inhibit their ovulation for other reasons. Think the female athletic triad. So we recommend weight loss as a first-line therapy in PCOS patients, but only, of course, if they're overweight or obese. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So he suggests the the very classic advice for weight loss. He doesn't have any nice hacks here. He says calorie restriction and more physical activity. So easier said than done. He does say that there's lower quality evidence on specific types of diets being better for PCOS, which as you would intuitively think is the lower sugar diet. I've seen a lot of stuff on the internet promoting Mediterranean diet for PCOS patients like fish, olive oil, veggies, and not having a lot of dessert, something and like that. And we talked about that in our fertility articles. That yeah. Although that's commonly recommended, there just doesn't seem to be evidence that it's helpful. Right, right, exactly. And then he says that in s- some cases, even bariatric surgery can be considered, but it's definitely a more extreme treatment for obesity. So the benefits have to outweigh the risks there. But any successful weight loss, at, like sustained long-term weight loss is going to drastically improve the PCOS patient's metabolic status and then modestly also improve their hyperandrogenemia and their ovulatory status, all because you're reducing some of their body fat and some of their insulin and some of their insulin resistance. So so on the topic of the insulin resistance, I'm always questioning which PCOS patients should be on metformin because I see it very commonly. And if a patient is not already on it and she sees me, oftentimes she'll ask me to write it for her. And even it's so common, even my own infertility clinic, they threw it into my regimen as well. Not at the doses that they talk about in this article, just the low dose. So I don't know, I whatever, I took it. But thankfully, that's also been addressed in this article. He says that metformin should be reserved only for patients who show either elevated insulin levels that you've checked or glucose intolerance on a test, or maybe if they have a strong family history of diabetes or other signs of significant metabolic dysfunction, like if they have acanthosis nigricans. And he also says if you're already using it, let's say a patient meets those criteria, but then they lose a lot of weight, then you should consider stopping it. Yeah, the metformin is way overused, and it goes back to the idea that it actually would make women ovulate, which we've shown in clinical studies is not true. And so it's just sort of the first-line thing for some reason in people's little handbooks, but it is not appropriate for the vast majority of patients. And even the use in patients with insulin resistance, I think, is expert opinion. It's a thought. It's definitely not helpful for the most women that are on it. So I think we should talk more about your infertility treatments at some <laughs> point, too. I'm definitely not convinced that you at a hundred and I won't say, but it's a small number of pounds needed metformin. 
according to what this article said. And as I said, just probably inappropriate for anybody who's not overtly diabetic or pre-diabetic. So that can be our thing we do for no reason today, because as you said, it is incredibly common. It seems like every primary care doc, once they see PCOS or polycystic carrying ovaries on an ultrasound or have a suspicion of it, immediately slaps metformin out there without any thought about insulin resistance or justification for it. So we do know that it doesn't enhance fertility. It doesn't make you ovulate better or anything like that. So we can talk more about that again at another day. Yeah, I think that would be fun. We were planning to circle back to the mysterious topic of IVF at some point in the future after we spent three whole episodes just on ovulation induction. And I certainly have learned more about IVF lately. So maybe we can save that for another day. But back to this article, the author does talk about how most anovulatory PCOS patients will need fertility treatment. So they will need ovulation induction. And he says, start with the basics, either letrozole or clomid. I think letrozole has shown to be superior. The article is five years old. So definitely in the last five years, we've clarified that. Yeah. And he says some of the patients may not respond to those meds. So then they may need to escalate to injectable gonadotropins. And because of how many follicles they have, the PCOS patients on gonadotropins are definitely at much higher risk of having multifetal gestations than someone without PCOS on those drugs. So then he says if patients aren't responding even to that, or if maybe they want to avoid that risk of multifetal gestation and kind of skip that that riskier drug for patient induction, then they would go on to pursue IVF for fertility. And in that case, those patients, PCOS getting IVF are at a lot higher risk of getting ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, again, because they have so many follicles. And for some reason, unfortunately, I know something about that too, but we can talk about that later. We should talk about your journey a little bit. Sounds like you got pretty sick there just recently for a week or two. So that'll be good to review too. But you didn't say anything about ovarian drilling. You brought this up before when we talked about it, but didn't you see that he talked about ovarian drilling in this article? Well, I yeah, I did see that. I might have intentionally tried to skip over that, but you've done it before. So why don't you re- review that part of the article? You make it sound like a standard thing I offer to all patients, but it was very much an exception and I have done it when a patient has failed other things and really didn't have other choices. But they do say, and I'll quote, laparoscopic ovarian drilling can result in a spontaneous pregnancy or improve the response to oral ovulatory agents and in some cases provide long-term improvements in hyperandrogenemia and ovulation with a lesser risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome and multiple births than gonadotrophin ovulation induction. So it's still a thing to consider and a lot of patients don't have the money for some of those other things too. But it should be rare. If you're doing this routinely, you might be... That might be a thing we do for no reason. But that's a verbatim quote from the article. And uh, yeah, it's still something to keep in the back of our heads. I guess it's better than actually doing a whole wedge resection like Stein and Lee. Right, yeah. So I'll allow for that. Okay. Well, I think this wraps it up for today. So the Thinking About OBGYN website will have links to some of the articles we talked about. And we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thinkingaboutobgyn.com. Be sure to subscribe. Look for new episodes every two weeks.